2 Timothy chapter number 4. I intend to finish the book tonight, but that may be overly ambitious. We'll see what happens. But anyway, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we've been in Timothy for 2 Timothy for a little while now, and I've kind of outlined it by chapters and said that in chapter 1, he is telling Timothy to endure. So many people were falling away, people were apostatizing, and so he wanted to see uh, Timothy stick with the stuff and to finish chapter 2. He didn't want him just to endure, he wanted him to excel. If he was going to finish the race, he may as well come in first place, right? And so he said, uh, don't just endure, but to run the race well and to uh, fight the good fight and several different things there. And then we said in the third chapter, uh, not only was he to endure and to excel, but that he was going to have to uh, evaluate because there was going to be this uh, division, if you will. There was going to be false religion. There was going to be false teachers. There were going to be uh, the temptations to try to uh, appeal to the masses and to compromise in order to gain a following or to gain popularity because oftentimes uh, the truth is not going to make you popular. Uh, sticking to the things of God uh, wasn't going to make Timothy popular. And so there's going to be the temptation to pander. There's going to be the temptation to uh, follow these crowds that are gaining crowds rather than following God. So he says you need to evaluate the direction these guys are going in and make sure that you are going with God, that you are sticking with God instead of uh, falling for these uh, worldly methods and ideas and things. And so as we came to chapter number four, I said that uh, this is Paul's final chapter. This is the last writings of Apostle Paul that we have recorded before he died. We don't know exactly how long after he laid down his pen from writing this that he went off to the Roman executioner and uh, History tells us that he uh, was beheaded for his faith. And so we don't know how long of a time that was. In reading and studying this today, something interesting for you. Uh, he was executed under Nero. Nero, we talked about in the past, had um, allowed the much of the city of Rome to burn down. It started out in the, the poorer areas, kind of the slums of Rome, uh, which was mostly wooden houses and things. And a good portion of Rome burnt down. And uh, there were rumors going around that uh, that Caesar, that Nero, was playing the fiddle while the city burned. Okay, and so to take some of the heat off of himself, he needed a scapegoat. He blamed it on Christians, and so he started a uh, an effort to round up and persecute and kill as many Christians as what he could, and uh, blamed them for burning the city down. And so it was in all of that that Paul was arrested the second time that he was sentenced to death. And after Paul was executed, it was within the same year, within months of Paul being executed, that there was an uprising against Nero himself and that Nero was forced to commit suicide. And so just a short time after Paul's death, uh, Nero was dead. And I found that was pretty interesting. But anyway, uh, that's just a little extra information for you. Uh, but anyways, we come back to this here. Uh, in chapter number four, he is telling uh, Timothy that he wants him uh, not just to uh, not just to endure, not just to excel, not just to evaluate, but he wants him. Excuse me. 
He wants him to be entrusted with the ministry. Paul is passing the baton to him because Paul knows that his days are few. He doesn't have too much longer before he's going to be uh, leaving the face of earth, and uh, he wants Timothy to continue onward uh, in doing the things that Paul no longer will be able to do whenever he passes off the scene. And uh, so we saw in chapter 4, in the first few verses, he says, I charge thee. I'm, uh, in a way, giving you a command. I'm entrusting you with this uh, task for you to do. And so as we uh, finish up the chapter here in chapter 4, let's go ahead down to verse number 6. And I'll read a little bit here. Chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to, excuse me, Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable unto me for the ministry, and Antichicus have I sent to Ephesus, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, uh, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil, the Lord reward him according to his works, of whom that of whom be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. And my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may be may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver, uh, deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Prudence, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And so we read to the end of the chapter there. As I said, I don't know that we'll cover all of it today, but we have a couple uh, very well-known passages in this that we're going to be looking at. But as I said, Paul is going to be um, passing the baton, if you will, to Timothy. And in verse number six, he has just got done telling Timothy to make full proof of his ministry. Uh, I said last week in that he was uh, telling him to finish well uh, what God had left him there to do. And so to make full proof of his ministry, uh, he wanted him to uh, accomplish what God had, had intended for him. God's got a different purpose for every individual, something different for each person to do. Paul didn't tell Timothy to, to do the work that Paul was supposed to do or that Barnabas or that Peter or someone else, but he said make full proof of thy ministry. But in verse number six, he says, I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. And so he's got two different ways of illustrating his coming death, his soon leaving this earth, his beheading that we 
we know of now. And Paul probably knew about what was uh, in store for him there. But he says, he compares it here to being offered up. And so in a way, Paul had lived his life as a living sacrifice. He told us in Romans chapter 12, verse number one, present your bodies as living sacrifice unto God, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And we know that passage, but Paul had lived that out. He had been a living sacrifice throughout his life. And so he said, in my death, I'm going to be a dying sacrifice. And basically what he was saying is whenever it comes time for my execution, my blood is going to be poured out unto my God. And the language that he's using here, it's almost like a drink offering. You remember uh, the story of David whenever he was fleeing from Saul and he was longing for the waters from the well of Bethlehem. You remember that story? And a couple of his mighty men braved it and went to Bethlehem and got water from the well and brought it back to David, presented it to David. And what was David's response? What? Okay. He said this was the price of men's lives, basically. I can't accept this. The cost was too much. So I'm going to pour this out an offering unto God, right? And so that was kind of the picture of Paul here. He says, I'm getting ready to pour my life out unto God. Uh, as the, the headsman comes out and beheads me, my life is being offered a sacrifice. So he's going to die the way that he lived. And that's just fitting for the Apostle Paul, isn't it? For him to die the same way that he had lived as a sacrifice unto God. But not only that, but he says, uh, the time of my departure is at hand. And so we think of death, we think of separation, we think of finality, we think of an end, we think of uh, really it's a sad, it's a gloomy type thing, right? But Paul is setting here, uh, we're going to get into the conditions that he was in, but Paul was setting here in a dungeon. This would have been uh, like uh, one of the prisons that we would think of today or the jails that we would think of today. Probably if you go to some of the worst conditions uh, on the planet right now in prisons and jails, they would still pale in comparison to how awful the prison systems would have been at that time. They weren't trying to look out for your well-being. Uh, they weren't trying to make things comfortable. They weren't even trying to keep you alive. They were enjoying torturing, especially under Nero. Nero would torture people just for the fun of it. He got enjoyment out of it. For Christians, he would uh, dip them in wax or oil and set them on fire to light his gardens. So you can imagine what the prisons would be like. And so this is where Paul was at. And as he was facing his death, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. And the word here, departure, uh, the words that it's translated from, it has to do with uh, basically whenever you're getting ready to pack up a tent and move on to the next place, or whenever you were getting ready to uh, pick up your anchor and set sail off to a new place. Whenever Paul said, my departure is at hand, I'm getting ready to leave one place and head to another. Uh, we find in scripture that he said uh, that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord and that he was willing to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So he says, basically, I'm just changing my address. I'm changing my residence. I'm getting ready to leave this place. And not only that, if we turn back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, in light of Paul talking about being offered up, I think this is a, a really good passage to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, starting with verse number 1, it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle 
or dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we already have this picture of moving from one place to another, right? For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not uh, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath also given us unto us the, the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the, for the, from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And so we see here uh, in Paul's earlier writings in 2 Corinthians, this idea of him saying that whenever this earthly body is dissolved, this earthly tabernacle, whenever I take my final breath, whenever uh, I meet my end, whatever way it is, whether by old age or by sickness or by execution, because there was plenty of times they tried to kill him, he says, whatever it is, I know I'm just putting off this tabernacle and putting on another one. That I'm going to be absent from this body. I'm going to be present with the Lord. And there were times that he was actually wrestling with it, that he said that, uh, that he desired basically to go to heaven, but he knew that it was better for him, not better for him, but better for the people he was ministering to, that he remained behind. And so he was kind of caught between the two. He was so looking forward to heaven. We find that it's recorded as being the blessed hope of the believer. And so Paul is using beautiful language here, saying that I'm getting ready to pour out my final offering to God, and then I'm going to leave this body, I'm going to depart from this world, and I'm going to go to my heavenly home. That is a great confidence that Paul had. And it's a wonderful thing that a Christian is able to know where he's going. We find that Paul knew beyond the shadow of a doubt where he was going. You talk to a lot of people, they don't know where they're spending eternity. You ask them, they don't know for sure. Uh, if you look at the doctrines of several religions, they say, well, you're never going to know because it's dependent on your works. It's not dependent on our works. It is dependent on the work that Christ did on the cross. And so Paul was able to be confident of what was going to happen the moment that he died. And so he could face even execution, he could face even such a horrible death as he was getting ready to endure, he could face that with confidence because he knew that he was getting ready to be in the presence of his Lord. And that's a great comfort whenever someone is facing death. And I'm thankful that the worst thing that can happen to me down here really is nothing when compared to the great things that await me there. The worst thing that a person could do to me here would be send me to Jesus quicker, right? Because everyone fears death. People, we were talking before church about a uh, shooting that happened in the States. We've seen different deaths that's occurred. We talked about during our prayer time the, the fellow that was gunned down in Iraq. And the thing is, as soon as the bullets passed through him, he was standing before Jesus, right? And so what kind of a reassurance is that? What kind of a uh, strength is that for us? That whatever we face, we have heaven to look forward to. The Bible tells us that our life that we have down here is but a vapor that appears for a little time 
and then it vanishes away. And so we've all seen vapor, of course, this time of year, uh, steam and fog and all of these things uh, are very, fairly common. You run the kettle, you've got steam that comes up above it, before long, it's going. It's in the walls making mold, right? That's what's happening here. But steam appears for a little time and it vanishes away. And that's what the Word of God likens our life to. But that vapor is soon gone, but our lives, if we're born again, our lives are not over, that we are eternal and we are going to be united with our Savior in the heavens. And it says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're going to be there forever. And so Paul is looking at this. He is writing this from a dungeon. Most likely it is damp, it is cold, it is dark, probably rat infested. We're going to find out here in a minute he has very little clothes, so he's freezing. And on top of that, he's probably getting very little food. And most of the people that he knows and he's been associated with have either left for other business or they have abandoned him and the faith. And so he's going to be there alone in the dark in horrible conditions, and yet he still has a joy about him. And so as we talk about uh, difficulties, as we talk about trials and testings, we talked about that some on Sunday. As we talk about these kind of things, if we're not careful, we start thinking that maybe that's all the Christian life is about. And that's not the case, and that's not what we're trying to get across at all. But the thing is, it doesn't matter whether you're saved or you're lost, you will have problems on this earth. Bible says in another place that man is, that is born of woman is a f uh, few days and full of trouble. We're familiar with that passage. And so it doesn't matter if you're a saved man or a lost man, a saved woman or a lost woman, you're going to have trials and tribulations on this earth. Do lost people have money trouble? Yes. Do lost people have marriage trouble? Yes. Do lost people have uh, anxieties and fears and stresses? Yes. Do lost people have many of the same problems that saved people do? Yes, they do. But what is the difference? They go through them without God. They have no hope. They have no comforter. They have no one through which they can go and cry out to and seek peace and joy and strength through those. No God who promises that his grace is sufficient for them. They don't have that. But we as Christians, if you're born again, we have that. And so Paul is able in this prison, and most likely there were other people who didn't know Christ in the prison with him. And I guarantee you they were going through the situation differently than what he was. But anyway, he says here in verse 6, um, he says, I am ready to be offered. Now, every word is important, isn't it? He doesn't just say, I'm going to be offered. He says, I'm ready for it. I'm prepared for this. I'm okay with it. I've made peace with it. I understand what's getting ready to happen. This is going to be a violent end for me, but I'm ready. And he says, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. In verse number seven, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And I believe this ties into what we've seen earlier in uh, the beginning of chapter number two, whenever he talked about uh, fighting as a good soldier and they who strive for masteries must uh, strive lawfully. You remember those passages? And so we're compared here to someone who is running a race, someone who is fighting a fight, and he says, I have fought the good fight. So he's fought the right fight. There's lots of things that we can fight for or fight against in this world, and we can waste our time away. We can 
cause ourselves all kinds of heartaches and troubles and problems by using all of our efforts to fight at the wrong places. But Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the fight that my God, my commander has placed me into. I have fought it faithfully for him. I have engaged the enemy, the right enemy, at the right times and the right places. I have fought the good fight. And so he's implying that his master that has sent him, that we saw in chapter number two, is pleased with him. If you look back in chapter number two, it says, um, let's see here, verse three, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, no man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So he says, I fought a good fight. And then he says, I have finished my course. Uh, verse number five of chapter two, if any man strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. He says, I finished my course. And something important about this, and I was thinking about as I was studying this, whenever someone is running a race, there's a course that's laid out for them. Do they determine the course? Are they the ones that lay out the course? No. Who lays out the course? Somebody else, right? The one who is in charge of the race, the one that is putting it on. The one that you are running for is the one that's going to lay out the race. You don't get to determine the boundaries and the guidelines. They are going to mark it out. They're going to set it out. And your part of it is running the race. And so this idea of this course that is set before him, this was a course that was made for him. Uh, I couldn't help but think whenever I was looking at this, uh, the girls and I went and did go-karts on Monday. Okay, we were racing and there was a course, there was a track. We didn't make the track. We didn't make the rules. We didn't determine how we wanted to go on the track. We had to follow the track, didn't we? Some of us did better than others. But we won't discuss that. But anyway, there was a definite course that was laid out and we came and we had to run that course, didn't we? And the reason why I bring these things out is because in our lives, as we're living for God, God has a course that he has designed specifically for each one of us. There is not a one-size-fits-all like the go-kart track. All four of us was running the same course. That's not the way that life actually goes as we're talking about this. God has a course laid out for every individual, every Christian, for them to run. And Paul says, I have finished my course. And so there's a course for him, there was a course for Timothy, there's a course for you, there's a course for me. They're all going to be different. And so he says, I finished my course. Going back to the go-kart idea here, whenever we ran the course, it was up to us as we were going around to learn the course, to figure out how to navigate the course, to try to stay on the course, right? And the longer that we spent on the course, the better we learned how to navigate the course, okay? And you started to pay attention to the different signs and the different directions. You started to get a feel for how the vehicle handled and things like that. And the longer that you went, the better you were able to navigate the course. And so I kind of liken that to us living the Christian life. The longer we go, if we're paying attention, if we're desiring to stay on the course that God has given us, 
we will learn to become more in tune with the directions that he has laid out for us. We'll be able to stay on course better, stay on track better, and be able to follow him because we see with Paul here, he had a great confidence saying that I have finished my course. I have ran it well. And that wasn't him being cocky or being arrogant. That was him with a lifetime of faithfulness and following God. Not saying I've always done perfectly, but the longer that I've ran, the more I've grown to be able to stay on course and follow after God, follow the path that he has for me and allowed him to order my steps, allowed him to guide me. And so uh, this is a process that God does in our lives over time. And hopefully the more years we're saved, the longer we're in this as Christians, uh, the better we are with our course, the better our lap times are, the cleaner our corners are, the less we're going to be bumping into the sides and wiping out and spinning out and all these things because experience is going to help us to better pay attention and follow the course that God has for us. Okay, is that a, a good illustration? Okay, so God's given me a good illustration in our lives this week, right? And so Paul says, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And we go back up to verse number five. Paul had told Timothy, make full proof of your ministry. What he's telling him to do, finish your course. Run the course that God has laid out for you. Run it to the end. Run it well. Don't lay off. Don't quit. Don't turn aside. Don't. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say this. I'll say it. Now. This this is this is makeup for uh, uh, for some of the abuse I've taken from Sarah. Okay? okay. Sarah's first trip around the track. And she had a little bit of trouble, and she did the one thing that the guy told her not to do. She left her go-kart. Okay? She had a little bit of trouble. She left her go-kart. Okay? And now it was a practice run. And the reason he said that was to keep you safe, because if it was in the middle of an actual race, you leave your go-kart, you end up being roadkill, right? I mean, it was go-karts. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But it was on the practice lap, and she left her go-kart. And I don't say that just to embarrass Sarah. That's only half of it. <laughs> but in our Christian life, there's going to be times that we're going to mess up. There's going to be times that we're going to wipe out or things are going to get difficult or you're going to feel like things are out of control. And if you abandon your go-kart and you leave the track, then you're in trouble, right? We're going to find a man here in just a moment who did that. But this is what we're cautioning against. I'm getting dirty looks. Anyway, but this is a life lesson for us is that we've got to finish the course. We've got to stay in the driver's seat. We've got to continue onward following the course that God has set out for us, right? And so the longer we're at it, the more times that we mess up, we're going to be able to improve time after time and be able to stay on course. And Paul had a confidence. He says, I have finished my course. And if you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, that word there, my, might be a good one to underline or to circle because it was specifically a course tailored to him. God doesn't expect us to all be the same. He doesn't expect us all to run the same race. 
He didn't expect Paul to be a Timothy and Timothy to be a Paul. He didn't expect Peter to perform the same way as Paul did. He doesn't expect me to do the same thing as the preacher up the road. And he doesn't expect you all to do the exact same thing as what any of the rest of them did. He has a specific course for each of us. And so he says, my course. I finished my course. Don't try to run somebody else's course. Don't try to make your course like somebody else's. But find where God wants you. Find what God wants for your life and run your course. Okay? And then the last part of verse number seven, he says, I have kept the faith. Lots of people had. Lots of people had apostatized. They had walked away from it. They left their go-kart. And so he says, I have kept the faith. I'm still at the end of it. I'm still going. I'm still faithful. He says, I didn't allow the difficulties. I didn't allow whenever they stoned me and left me for dead. I didn't uh, allow the, the shipwrecks. I didn't allow the thorn in my flesh. I didn't allow any of these things to come between me and God. I didn't allow any of these things to cause me to throw my hands up and quit. I didn't allow any of these things to cause me to walk away. God's grace truly was sufficient. And so he held fast to his profession. He kept the faith. And not only did he keep the faith as in continuing to believe until the time he died, but he also stuck to the faith, the truth, the body of truth that was revealed unto him, and he didn't depart from it toward heresy either. He didn't quit believing God. He didn't quit believing God's truth and substitute it for falsehood. He says, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And so verse number eight says, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them that love his appearing. And so we're still dealing with Paul's confidence here. He says, I'm confident in light of my departure. I'm getting ready to die, but that doesn't really bother me because I'm confident that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. He was confident because he was consistent and faithful in this life. He finished his course. He kept the faith. But he was also confident because of the promises of God. He said, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. This isn't talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ, because whenever a person is saved, we receive Christ's, uh, Christ's righteousness onto our account. God sees us as holy, okay? But throughout this life, the Holy Spirit and the Lord works in our life to transform us, to renew us, to uh, conform us unto his image, right? And so that is uh, what we call uh, practical sanctification. That is that righteousness that God works in us. Not that he just gives to us and imputes to us, but that he works in us. And he says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That quality of being right with God, of living a right life, he says there is a crown of righteousness. And this idea of a crown, it's not a king's crown, but it is a victor's crown. Uh, in that time, they would have had the Greek games, they would have had the Olympics and all those things. And we've all seen like the little, uh, the little wreaths, the little crowns that they make out of uh, like evergreen branches or whatnot that they would put on the victor's heads, right? We've seen those on statues and pictures and different things. And so this is the idea of the crown that he's talking about, and it is a reward for his service. He ran his race well, and he says God is going to 
reward me for my works. See, our works don't get us into heaven. Our works don't save us, but God does reward us according to our works. We can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, and this is a passage I reference often, but it says that every man's works will be tried what manner uh, they be, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, right? That they were going to pass through the fire, and that which remains, the gold, silver, and precious stones, would be a reward unto the person. The wood, hay, and stubble would represent those things that were done in the flesh, where the person, not for God, they would be burned up, right? And so he says, I'm going to receive rewards for the righteousness that God has worked in me, for this right life which I have lived, this course that I have ran. And so God is going to give me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And so we're seeing this idea of this day before, uh, excuse me, this day again, and this day of his appearing. We saw that reference in chapter 4 and verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Right? And so verse number 8, the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me also, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing, right? So he's looking to the future, and he says the Lord's coming back. He's going to reward all of those who have been faithful, those who have been serving him, and this crown of righteousness is going to go to all of those who love his appearing, okay? So what does it mean to love his appearing? Who is it that will love the appearing of Christ? Okay, will all Christians love his appearance? Okay, not, not all Christians are going to be all that thrilled about his appearance. Why not? What about the ones that got out of their go-kart and walked off the track? Are they going to be real happy about it? So the ones who are not living righteously, the ones who have left the faith, so to speak, the ones who have uh, not followed his course, are probably not going to love his appearing, right? It says there in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, that there would be some there whose works would be burned up and they'd be saved, yet so as by fire. We have some of the parables of Jesus talks about the master coming back and finding some of his servants not being faithful, not doing what he left them to do, right? And so they're not going to be joyful about his appearing. But Paul says for him who had fought the good fight, who had finished his course, who had kept the faith, he was going to love the Lord's appearing because he had been living righteously. And all those who are living righteously, they're going to be looking forward to his appearing. They're going to be glad whenever he appears. Uh, let me put it this way, okay? Back whenever I was a kid, and my dad would usually come home after I got home, okay? If I was in my dad's good pleasures, if I was uh, being a good little boy, 
I was happy to see my dad. But if I'd gotten in trouble throughout the day, or if I'd been doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, was I glad to see my dad? I was his son either way. He wasn't going to disown me. He wasn't going to send me to an orphanage. But I didn't always love his appearing. Right? And so Paul says, There is laid up a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them that love his appearing. So he says those who are living faithfully, serving him, he's going to reward them. They're going to be glad whenever he comes. He's going to keep them. He's going to take good care of them, all these things. So he's encouraging Timothy to run his course and to keep the faith, right? He's not warning him saying you're going to lose your salvation. He's not warning him saying that God's going to kick you out of heaven or that any of these things are going to happen. But he says there are rewards to be had. He says there is something comforting, something reassuring, that no matter if he was in the prison or wherever else he was in life, for him to know that he was right with God, that he was serving God, and that God was with him. We'll see that here in a minute. But there was something comforting about that, that he had a confidence while he was serving God that God was with him, that God was going to take care of him through whatever he went through, and that he was going to spend an eternity with God. And not only that, but that God was going to reward him for his faithfulness. Now you compare that to living for this world, and the world will chew you up and spit you out. You live for God, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? And so we come down to verse number 9. He tells Timothy, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Timothy has been his apprentice, his confidant, his uh, co-laborer, his disciple for many years now. He has a great relationship with Timothy. He sees him as a son. And Paul is facing, even though he has joy, even though he has peace, he is facing difficulty. He's facing a dark time. And he says, Timothy, I want your presence here. There's just something about having the company of others. We don't want to go through things alone. And I'll tell you, oftentimes, whenever we go through difficulties, whether it be the flesh or the devil or whatever it is, one of our first responses is to push people away and isolate ourselves. And that is the, one of the worst things for us. Paul says that I'm going through this. I have some confidence in God, but I would really like your company. Okay. And so he says, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Verse 10 says, for Demas hath forsaken me. Now that's a familiar, a familiar name because he was listed in some of those who was in company with Paul. As Paul is writing letters, you know how oftentimes, either in the beginning of the letter or the ending of the letter, he would reference several different people. There was a couple of his letters that he wrote about Demas being a co-laborer and a fellow heir with Christ and these different things. And so Demas was... A helper to him. He was one that they had uh, preached together, they had ministered together, they had labored together, but it says that Demas had forsaken him. And that word forsaken, it's, it means that. It means that he abandoned him. He left him high and dry. It wasn't just that he went a different direction or he wasn't uh, uh, 
quite of the same mind as what Paul was, and they decided to separate like Paul and Barnabas. But instead, he says, he just abandoned me. He left me in a bad spot. And he goes further to say why he did that. He says that he loved this present world. He says things got difficult for Demas, and Demas says, I would rather have it easy in this life. I'd rather abandon the faith and go out and enjoy what this world has to offer than to suffer for a little while for the cause of Christ and enjoy the things of heaven. Okay? He had a complete different perspective than Paul. And so he got his eyes off of God, he got his eyes off of eternity, got his eyes on the world, and he says, forget this, it's too difficult. Now we can give Demas a hard time and say, you know, that was awful that he would have done that, he should have remained faithful. But you've got to realize the amount of persecution that was going on there as well. And most likely, we would have been right there with Demas if not in front of him. Right? Because how likely are we, whenever things get difficult, for us to try to find an easy way or for us to try to get a little bit of peace and comfort on this earth rather than trusting God to take us through the hardship. So it's almost that situation. It's easy to pick on Demas, just like it's easy to pick on Peter for doubting whenever he was walking on the water. We've all picked on Peter for doubting, right? But he was the only one that got out of the boat. And if I would have been in the same situation, I would have still been on the boat. I wouldn't have the opportunity to sink because I probably wouldn't have the faith to get out of the boat to begin with, right? And so he says, for Demas, it got too difficult for Demas, and he decided that he was going to enjoy the pleasures of this world, that he loved this present world more than he loved God and eternity. He couldn't get it, his focus off of the temporary here for the eternal later on. But we find here, even though he says, Demas hath forsaken me, he doesn't condemn him. He doesn't say how horrible he is. He doesn't berate him in any way. He's just informing Timothy, Demas quit. Demas stopped. Demas is no longer uh, ministering. He's no longer, uh, no longer coming to church. He's no longer serving. He has quit. And the reason why I make this specific, we'll see here in just a minute, I think there's something important about that. It says, Demoth has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica. It says, Cretans to Galatia. Notice it doesn't say that Cretans has forsaken me. It doesn't say that he's left the faith. He doesn't say any of those things. He says that simply he's departed to, where was it? Galatia. So what I see here is that ministry is taking him away from Paul. Christians is still serving. He's still living, but Paul is stuck in jail. Paul can't go anywhere. Paul can't minister where he's at. And there's no reason for Christians just to stay and commemorate or commiserate with him. There is a work to be done. And so Christians is left, I assume, in the work to go out and continue on in ministry. Titus as well. We have an entire uh, epistle written to Titus. And Titus was made of tough stuff. I don't think he quit. I don't think that he abandoned. But instead, he went into Dalmatia. He had to continue serving. And so, yes, Paul was in jail. They would have loved to stay in comfort and help him. But there was a work for them to do. And they went to these different places. And he says, only Luke is with me. Luke was the beloved physician. He was a doctor. Paul had all kinds of 
health issues and ailments, and it seemed like he needed a doctor to stay with him. And so I think Luke loved Paul and just took up on himself and says, okay, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to care for Paul's physical needs. And so Luke was the only one with him. He says, only my doctor is here. He's the only comfort I have. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee. So it seems as if Mark was somewhere near Timothy. And if we go back in time, early into Paul's ministry, Paul and Barnabas set out. They went on their missionary trip. And who did they take with them? They took Mark. And then what did Mark do? Abandoned him. He forsook him, right? And this is what I was saying was important about Demas. Because he couldn't condemn Demas because he sees that Mark had come full circle. If he would have been writing this several years earlier, he would have said, Mark hath forsaken us, having loved this present world, right? But now he tells Timothy, he says, bring Mark with you, for he is profitable unto me. And so we see the recovery from the forsaking, and hopefully Demas would do the same thing. And I think maybe that is why the Holy Spirit put those two names there so closely together, because you have one who is forsaking and hopefully will return, and one who had already forsaken and made the return. And so there's not condemnation with either of them there, but he says that there is a there is the possibility of coming back from forsaking. And so the reason I bring all of this out is it's easy to condemn those who have left the course. It's easy to condemn those who have uh, struggled or strayed or have messed up in their Christian life, who have uh, had their share of wipeouts, accidents, whatnot. It's easy to condemn those, but thankfully, that doesn't have to be the end of their story. Thankfully, Demas hath forsaken me doesn't have to be the end of it. Demas may have returned to the faith. We don't know. He may have gotten straightened out a little while later. We don't know because Mark did. And so this is why the Bible cautions us to take heed whenever you think that you stand lest you fall. Why it tells us to uh, restore such a one in meekness because guess what? we could have the same thing happen to us, right? And so he says, Demoth hath forsaken me, but now Mark forsook me one time, but now bring him with you because he is profitable to me for the ministry. He says, there was a time that I was going wide open for God. I had everything ahead of me and Mark was slowing me down and he abandoned me. But now as I'm coming in and I'm rounding the, this final lap, I'm getting ready to depart this life. Mark is still here. He's proved himself to be faithful. And I can see him having an important part in keeping this faith going, in doing this work that God has left, that this is bigger than me. It's bigger than anyone else. And it's going to take Mark. It's going to take all these other ones because it's not going to end just because Paul's going. They can't say Christianity is going because Paul is going. It continues onward, and Mark is one of them that's going to be able to carry it on. And so he says, bring him with thee. He is profitable to me for the ministry. He says, Antichicus have I sent to Ephesus. Ephesus is where Timothy was at. 
So he was pretty confident that Timothy, even as timid as he was, was going to face going into something as dangerous as Rome, that he was going to put his life in danger because, uh, for one thing, it would be almost a death sentence to be seen with Paul because Paul was the head of the Christian sect at that time. And so he was public enemy number one after Nero had made out like it was the Christians that burnt Rome. Remember me saying that earlier? And so Paul was a leader of the Christians. The Christians supposedly burnt Rome. And so anyone who came to Rome professing to be a Christian, especially if they associated with Paul, was putting their life in danger. But Paul knew that Timothy would come to him. And so he says, I've already sent Tychicus back to Ephesus where you're at to relieve you and to take over your ministry while you come to Rome to be with me. And so you see a little bit of tenderness between Paul and Timothy there, the confidence that he has in Timothy, that Timothy's going to brave these things to come to him, but also the care that Paul still has as he is getting ready to face death, the care for the church there at Ephesus to make sure that there's someone in place there, not just to take Timothy away, not just take their pastor away and leave them in the lurch, but instead he says, I've sent Tychicus there to relieve you so you can come to me and bring me some comfort and some relief. So in verse number 13, we'll have to wrap up here. I'm not going to get through the rest of this chapter. Uh, but anyway, verse 13, it says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, uh, and the books, but especially the parchments. So he says, I've left a few things behind. Whenever you come, I need you to bring these things to me. So think for just a minute. You're locked in a damp, dark, dirty jail cell. What would you be asking for? What would be most important to you? If someone was coming to bring you things, what would you desire? Clothes and food? Okay. Clothes, food, light, those kind of things, right? Well, Paul says, bring my cloak. The cloak would have been the heavy outer garment. He left it there uh, at Troas because he was going down in the Mediterranean region, which would have been warm. And so basically, he left his winter coat behind whenever he went down to the tropics. Makes sense, doesn't it? So he says, if you will, go collect that for me because now I'm in this damp, dark, dirty jail cell and I need some warmth. I need some comfort. I'm underdressed for the conditions. If you'll bring me that coat. He's not complaining about his conditions. He's not bringing a bunch of attention to it. He just says, bring me the coat. A little bit of historical search and different things. You can find the kind of conditions Paul was in, but he says very little about it. All he says, bring my coat. And then the other thing he asked for, bring the books and the parchments. So this is Apostle Paul that wrote some half of the New Testament that had studied and probably memorized most of the Old Testament, had preached and taught all over the world throughout Asia and throughout Europe for most of his adult life and knew the scriptures forward and backward. And yet whenever he was at the point and he was facing death, what was important to him? He says, I need the Bible. I need the scriptures, the books and the parchments. That's what he's referring to. This isn't coloring books. This isn't uh, 
reference material. This is scripture that he's wanting. And so he says, even facing the end of my life, even after all the time that I've spent in study and in scripture and preaching and teaching, the Bible is still not exhausted. I have not completed my studies. I have not moved past needing to continue in the word. And he says, if I need comfort in these conditions that I'm in, the things that are most important is, yes, I need my coat to keep warm, but I need God's word to comfort me. And so that's what he's seeking after whenever he's at this place, almost to death, he says, I still haven't moved past where the Bible is precious to me, where whenever I've got very little that I can have at my disposal, one of the things that's at the top of my list, I want to have God's word with me. And so that really shows us how important it is and how high of a priority it is. If someone like the Apostle Paul, like I said, being a Jew, being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he probably even had the Old Testament almost memorized. But he still says, bring me the word of God. Bring me the books, bring me the parchments. He hadn't moved past that. And so whenever we think that we know the Bible and we think that we've read it enough times, we're barely getting started. If it was that important to Paul, then it should be that important to us, right? How is it that Paul could face the conditions that he was? How is it that he could say, uh, I'm ready to be offered up. The time of my departure is at hand. How was he able to face death and persecution in the manner that he was? I think we see a couple of the, a couple of the very important pieces here in this passage is for one, he prioritized the word of God. He prioritized his walk with God and he prioritized the company of fellow believers. You see all three of those in this passage? He says, I'm surrounding myself with companions that know God. I'm seeking to study and know God's word and I'm seeking to faithfully follow God's will. And those three things mixed together made it possible for him to face the things he did with such confidence, such, such assurance, such comfort. And to be honest, that's a little bit convicting to me. That he is able to do those things because of those things. And we've already talked just a few moments ago. If I'd been Peter on the ship, I would never got out of the ship. If I'd been Demas facing those things, I probably would have went the same way Demas did, maybe even sooner. And so if we want to run our course and fight the good fight and keep the faith, I think these are some of the things that are important to us. We need to be in God's will. We need to be in his word. We need to be surrounded by his people. And that is a recipe for success. So with that, I know we don't have very much at all left with this uh, with this chapter, but we're out of time. So I'll go ahead and I'll end right there. Does anyone have any questions or any comments, anything to add this evening? What? That's normal. 
Sarah's going to cry me a river for using her for an illustration. Okay. Now let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. And we do thank you for the examples that you've put in the Bible, for the instructions for us, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, ask you just to help us to take these, apply it to our lives, Lord. Help us, Lord, to... Uh, take it seriously. You see it for what it is, Lord. And Lord, I just pray, ask you, Lord, help us to uh, fight the good fight. Help us to uh, finish our course and help us keep the faith. Thank you for all you do and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.